text this morning comes from the 17th chapter of the Gospel of John. We will read the 13th verse and then jump down to the 18th through the 21st. Give attention to this, the reading and the hearing of God's Word. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. As you sent me into the world, I also sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through your word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Father, may the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. My first and only visit to the Holy Lands was in the early 1970s. I went there to work on an archaeological site at Tel Gezer. Next week at this time, God willing, I will be there ready to be with a group of experienced pastors for the week. I received this email this morning from my host, a Ph.D. graduate of Golden Gate, Seth Pastel, and a professor over there. He wrote about what I can expect. He said we will have 24 students in the class, 13 Arab and 11 Messianic. Their ages will range from 35 to 60. All of them in the class are seasoned pastors who love the Lord and are dear servants of God. You will have a captive audience of people who are hungry to receive tools to serve their flocks. What an honor it will be to be with them and how much I expect to uh, learn from them. He adds, you will be simultaneously translated into Arabic. All the Jewish students speak English quite well. Now, going back to my journey in the early 70s, as my plane left the runway to carry me home from Tel Aviv Airport on my last trip at that time to Palestine, I found myself in the airplane looking down at a full newspaper page picture of the then Prime Minister of Israel, Golda Meir. Beneath her large, smiling face was a single caption. It read, Making the Desert Bloom. Now the ad was, of course, talking about how the secular nation of Israel was bringing so many cultural and agricultural advances to what had previously been a relatively dry, dusty, and impoverished place, at least at that time, making the desert bloom. It was a clear, confident, proud statement of a mission. It seems to me that something like that is the myth mission with which Christ came to us and with which he has left us, making the desert bloom. Our text this morning 
can be read as Jesus is sharing his own mission statement and giving us ours. I thought of summarizing it this way. Jesus' mission in life is to show the glory of God to the world. And ours is to show his glory to the world. In verse 4 of chapter 17, Jesus says, Father, I have glorified you through the work you gave me to do. And in verse 6, he says, I revealed your name, your character, your person, your presence. To show that something is glorious, as we've seen in weeks before, is to show that it's weighty, substantial, valuable to be treasured. To glorify something means to show people that that thing is important and crucial and central. Jesus' mission, then, was to show the centrality of the glory of the Father for all things. On our own, we apparently don't know that glory, and we can't see it. Making God's glory known. It's not just Jesus' personal mission statement in the 17th chapter. It's a theme which runs throughout Scripture. Psalm 67, I also almost use Psalm 96. You might look at them in your quiet times at home. Both similar, but Psalm 67 tells us God's purpose is to be known and praised and enjoyed and feared throughout the earth. Its opening verses run, God be merciful to us and bless us, and cause your face to shine upon us, that your way might be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, and all the ends of the earth fear him. So Psalm 67 is a kind of prayer that in verse 2 God might be known, in verse 3 he might be praised, in verse 3 he might be enjoyed, in verse 7, which we didn't read, that he might be feared. And in John 17, almost duplicating that, we see that this is Jesus' mission. We know that the life of the triune God is from all eternity, a life of relational, self-sacrificial, communal, giving, relational love. We also know that this triune God has chosen to be a fountain of life and love for all of his creation. There are some families that kind of turn it on themselves. The, the, the triune family, Father, Son, and Spirit, is a family, if we can use that analogy or image that readily invites others in. His life and his being is one of going out with his love, and that is the life his children are brought to share and to show. So missions begins with the mission of God. In Latin, it's the missio dei. We know that God is a God of mission. According to Timothy Timmont, and I've Spent a lot of this week lost in this magnificent new book, published in 2010, I believe, but new to me. Almost 600 pages long, Invitation to World Missions, a Trinitarian Missiology for the 21st Century. Timothy Timmott writes, The life, ministry, and work of the church, our work, our life together, our time now, must be linked to the sovereign prior action of God. Before we can speak of the church doing anything, Before we can speak of the church doing missions, 
we must first see God is the God of missions. Everything must be founded on the prior nature, character, and initiative of God. To flesh that out, we are sent on a task that is independent or distinct from God's own life. We, in missions, step into the flow of God's eternal, sovereign, ongoing character. So throughout Scripture, we see this as the overarching theme, the overarching purpose. He calls Abraham and enters into covenant so that Abraham might be a blessing to the nations. Isaiah picks up uh, this theme. Somewhere the same theme is picked up. I was just going to tough it out, but I was a little late this morning, and so I had Stephanie number my pages, and on the car coming down, I found out the numbering's off. So we tried to get it back together, but somewhere in these notes is uh, a reference uh, to Isaiah. God has summoned his people that his will be known. We we may envisage ourselves as a beleaguered outpost in stony soil in Marin, but it simply isn't true. What I've preached and said before, but in reflection this week, it simply isn't true that uh, the church is only one generation away from extinction. God has said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The church and the mission of the church is rooted in the promise of God and the character of God. Um, In a post-Christian West, which seems to be abandoning its Judeo-Christian roots, and as the center of Christianity is unquestionably moving away from Europe and North America to Asia and Africa and possibly South America, we should live not beleaguered lives but confident ones. Mission comes from and reflects the character of God. Again, quoting from Timothy Timmott in what is simply, I think, a missiological masterpiece of writing, he places missions squarely inside the Trinitarian character of God. I'm going to read three paragraphs taken from different places. So we see this sovereign act of God in God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit, first God the Father. Beginning with his covenant with Abraham to know and bless all nations, we should not speak of the sending church unless and until we understand God the Father as the sender. The Father sent his Son into the world and the church becomes the ongoing Reflection of the triune God in the world, God the Father. Then from another chapter, God the Son. Through the incarnation of Jesus Christ, we see the redemptive embodiment of God's mission in the world. God the Father sends God the Son into the world to embody the new creation and to demonstrate how to engage an unbelieving world with truth and grace. And God the Spirit. The church is not only nourished by the memory of the incarnation and of the cross and of the resurrection, but also we are empowered by the presence of the risen Lord in the church, which is made manifest to us and to the world 
through the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. The gospel and God's initiatives do not stop at the cross and resurrection, but continue at Pentecost and in the life and witness of the church. The Holy Spirit enables and empowers the church to extend God's mission into the world. So to summarize all that, when we are on mission, we are revealing not only the very heart of God, but the very life of God from all eternity, Father, Son, and Spirit. The Father purposes missions to the world. The Son embodies it, and the Spirit implies it altogether. On the evening of the first day of Easter, Jesus comes to his disciples and says, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now earlier, in the fifth chapter of John's Gospel, he said, Whatever the Father does, I will do. So we wouldn't, shouldn't be surprised that what we see the Father doing there to the Son is what the Son says to his disciples, to his church, and to you and me. The Father sends the Son, but Jesus sends the disciples like Father, like Son. It's the heart of missions. In the first verse of Psalm 67 that we read, we have a prayer. Lord, bless us. One of the ways God glorifies his name is by blessing his people. Listen again. God, be gracious to us and bless us and cause your face to shine upon us. That, and there's the connecting word, that, your way may be known on the earth, your salvation among all nations. God blesses his people for a purpose, not just to use us, but because part of the joy of his life is in sharing his love and making his name known. God blesses his people for the sake of the world. This is the foundational truth that was found in Abraham and also in the prophet Isaiah. (laughs) Isaiah writes, I will give you Israel as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. In uh, Psalm 67, which we've just read, The author of Psalms takes that promise to bless the nations and makes it into a prayer. When we ask God for blessing on our sake, if it is bestowed, it pleases God to give blessing so that the nations can see who he is and praise his name. This kind of blessing is not a payment for services rendered. It is a power and joy for a mission to be accomplished. John Piper puts it this way. God blesses his people for the sake of the nations. Therefore, God is most likely to bless us when we are planning and longing and praying to bless others and to make the nations glad in God. Now let's pause and say, And recognize that God has blessed this church, Tiburon Baptist, in innumerable ways. In a few short weeks, we are going to gather, God willing, in this space and in this room, in what is for many one of their favorite services, a time in which we rehearse the way God has blessed us primarily in the preceding year. Uh, 
Perhaps we can rehearse that as a church now. He has blessed us with this property. You know I'm not exaggerating when I say that perhaps except for the telephone lines visible outside, this is one of the most beautiful sights on earth. He has provided this site from which to praise him and serve him and make his glory known. Our challenge is, and one I think the Lord intended, is to make our witness here as beautiful and joyful and noticeable as is this site. God has blessed us here with a multicultural congregation that reflects the character of his kingdom. God has blessed us here with a multi-generational congregation that combines strengths from every decade of life. God has blessed us with a talented congregation that is gifted and accomplished. He has blessed us with a loving congregation that with all of our warts and blemishes and shortcomings, and we do have many, is more united by our love of Christ and one another than torn asunder by our failings and shortcomings. No small measure of the way God has blessed this church is with the legacy of missions here. When a visiting head of a mission agency was with us and speaking from this pulpit just a few short weeks ago, what he was struck by was our missions wall and the number of missionaries that we support in a church of this size. The legacy of missions at Tiburon goes back to her very founding. And it has been one of the highest privileges of my life to be a part of sustaining and, I pray, growing that legacy. Maintaining the strength of this church is not just about serving the saints here, though that is worthwhile. It is not just about extending the kingdom in the county of Marin, though that is missions and worthwhile. But it also represents an impact that We have on scores of missionaries who have gone out and are supported prayerfully and lovingly and financially by this church. In my reading this week, I came across an image left behind by William Carey. He went to India in 1972. He saw his mission in terms of being a miner penetrating into a deep mine, which had never been explored before and with no one to guide. He said to his pastor friends, Andrew Fuller and John Ryland, I will go down if you will hold the rope. And John Ryland reports, he took an oath from each of us at the mouth of the pit to that effect, that while we lived, we should never let go of the rope. It has been the privilege of this church to hold the rope for many who have descended down into the mine that Carrie talked about. So God sends his church on mission. To be on mission is to live for a cause. And unless you are a person in mission, you really have not come to the fullness of humanity that God calls from us. In verse 10 of the 17th chapter of John, Jesus says to the Father, And I receive glory through them. The work of the Son then is to glorify the Father, but the work of his church, the work of the people, our work is to glorify Christ. Our work is to glorify Christ. Jesus doesn't just give us a mission in general. He says, I want you to be partners with me in my specific, particular mission. 
And the mission of Jesus Christ is to show the glory of the Father, and therefore the mission of the church, his people, is to show the glory of Christ. The point of this is that Jesus doesn't just send us into the world to talk about God in general, a generic God, but about Jesus Christ as the way to the Father in particular. In verse 10, to read it again, we have a staggering statement. Jesus says, I get my glory through them. The world sees my beauty. The world sees my centrality, my importance, my treasure through them, through my people, my disciples, my church. Jesus says he has created us and he has sent us into the world to be able to show people that he is glorious. Now, what's interesting about this is this is the same mission as the Holy Spirit. In John 16, verse 14, Jesus says the Spirit has come into the world with a specific purpose. The Holy Spirit, he says, will glorify me. He will take the things I've said and reveal these things to you. He will glorify me. Again, to quote from Timothy Timot, this Opportunity for missions doesn't just reveal the heart of God. It reveals the very character of God. It has a triune shape. The Father is the sender, the Lord of the harvest. The incarnate Son is the model embodiment of mission in the world. And the Holy Spirit is the divine, empowering presence for all of mission. Let me just conclude by saying verses 13 to 18 of chapter 17 remind us that at the very heart of missions, that missions itself means joy. When Jesus in Hebrews 12 talks about going towards the cross, it is said for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, flying like a banner over all of the other verses of Psalm 67 are those verses about song and joy. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. You can't summon others to sing a song you've never sung yourself. You can't invite others on a journey you have never walked yourself. And singing is the consummation of all the gladness that missions calls us to. This psalm is calling us to spread a passion for the glory of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples. This is the hardest and happiest work in all the world. And scripture tells us that the full measure of God's joy has to do and is not available without missions. Living in Holy God, we are all recipients of the greatest missionary journey in the history of the cosmos. When for love of us you sent your Son to endure our cross to pay the price we should have paid and die the death we should have died, that we might live the life for which we were created, life in communion with you. May others looking at the witness of this church see your glory. May they see your love. May they see your care and how we live and what we say and what we do. May your glory be known. And may we sing it and say it and live it in all that we are and do. 
For it is in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.